everyone. Welcome to the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Hagenbotham, and your co-host, Kevin Tofel. And today's show, we have awesome things for you. We have a whole section on updates around various dev boards. Mm. We have data on carriers in the Internet of Things. We have a whole segment and a guest, Bo Woods, who is the deputy director of the Cyber Statecraft Initiative at the Atlantic Council. He went to DEF CON, Black Hat, and B-Sides, and he is going to tell us all about what we should worry about and what we should probably just chill a little over. And we're also going to talk about Staples Connect, which did bite the bullet. But first, let's have a word from our sponsor. Working on building a connected product? Don't do it yourself. It's complex and it could be years before you're up and running. Years you can't afford to wait. So accelerate your time to market, de-risk your investment, and leverage Zively's expertise. Their IoT experts and business-ready, award-winning Zively platform will help you launch quickly, securely, and at scale. Learn more at Zively.com. That's X-I-V-E-L-Y.com. And now back to the show. So, Kevin, let's kick it off with something a little more exciting than dev boards. Sorry, everyone. Let's start with Staples Connect. Mm. Mm. Sad. Sad. So here's what happened. Staples Connect, which was one of the initial home hubs, actually, it launched about the same time that Revolve and SmartThings version one did. I actually tested all three of those and the original Lowe's Iris platform. Mm. It's got to be three years old. Yeah, I think that was a December 2013 story that I reviewed all of those. So Mm -hmm. it's ancient in the world of electronics. But it was really a great hub. So there were two versions of it, and both of them were awesome. These hubs were actually my favorite for a long time. They were the ones I would recommend to anyone who was kind of a beginner getting into the smart home. I felt that smart things was super fun and open, but it was a little more hacky and you had to be a little bit more clever and know what you were doing. But the Stables Connect were designed for mainstream customers. And by golly, it looks like the mainstream consumers did not take them up. It's kind of a shame because in addition to being one of the first usable ones on the market, usable hubs, I recall, gosh, I think it was at an old GigaOM event where they showed off the Staples Connect display and they're showing consumers how everything would work because really, you know, at at the time, smart home, who knew what that was? I mean, maybe our listeners did, but the mainstream audience uh, or consumer did not. And it was one of the first, I think, to do a great job explaining all the benefits, which products work with which, how they work together, why you want this. And it was it was fantastic from a consumer experience standpoint. But you're right, it just didn't catch on. It did not. And a Staples spokesperson told Twice, which is a publication, that the move was prompted by, quote, changing market dynamics and a focus on more business-oriented solutions, unquote. Mm. And this makes sense. So Staples actually tried to buy Office Depot. The FTC said, oh, no, no, no. Yeah. Um, and they've got, they've got some issues. So they are still going to sell smart home products. They just aren't going to have their own branded hub that, you know, works with those products. So, but, but there's good news for people who do have that hub. Yes, Kevin. Yes. So what Staples is doing is they are turning everything over in terms of sales and support to zone off and uh, the Z- Z-Wave products, which is an online retailer that sells obviously Z-Wave products. So that's 
good news for people who you know have this hub, love this hub. You know, it's just not going to die like certain ones that I won't name. Um, <clears throat> I'm not just not going to name them. <laughs> just, just don't name it. You know, revolve. Okay, I was about to say we'll revolve around it. that. So yes, basically, the continuation of your Staples Connect is brought to you by the letter Z. Yeah. I have purchased things from the Z-Wave products, folks, a Z-Wave remote, actually, and it works fine. And Zonoff is, they have been doing this for years. They're actually in Kevin's backyard. I knew you were going to say that because you keep telling me to go visit them. You've been telling me for three years. They have a lab. It's really cool. Uh, I'm busy. I know. All right. Okay. So I won't nag anymore at Kevin, although he, he kind of nagged. You nagged yourself. I brought that nag on. That's that's correct. That was a self-imposed nag. So anyway, so Zonoff, uh, or Zonoff actually is how we're supposed to say it, is supporting this. They're going to continue to make updates to the Connect app, which is awesome because, you know, these, these guys change their devices all the time. So it's really actually hard to be kind of a hub or an integrator because you have to keep up with the changing of, you know, the APIs and the SDKs. So that's going to still happen. It may not happen forever, but they will, to ease the transition, have a dedicated website, which we'll link to in the show notes. And they also have a hotline, which is 1-800-380-1518. So if you have a Staples Connect system, because I did recommend this way long ago, this is where you will get continuing help for at least a little while. Mm -hmm. And that basically leaves only the Lowe's product out in the market as a kind of vendor, vendor, retailer supported mm-hmm. device. Cause I don't know if you guys remember, it was a flash in the pan, but Best Buy had the peak platform, which mm. has disappeared. I'm sorry if you have peak platform. I didn't get the sense that a lot of people did. Mm-mm. So, cause that, that actually had a service fee associated with it. So, what? Not, not a fan of those. Not a fan of those. Not although, a fan of those. now that we're thinking about business models for the IoT going forward and all these things mm-hmm. are dying. Maybe a service plan isn't so crazy. I know, sacrilege, blasphemy. So that is the Staples news. So good luck to you guys. On a side note, I will say that if you are looking for another hub, because you just can't get enough hubs in your life, the Wink is currently the hub I'm recommending. I am playing again with the SmartThings hub. It's still not as reliable, and I really want it to be a little easier to use. Mm. So it is definitely more flexible. So if you are feeling feeling it, you really want to go for it, the SmartThings Hub is great. If you are a hacky kind of DIY person, it just doesn't feel mainstream enough yet, though, which is um, a problem because they're sticking it in TVs. Yeah, that's true. I, I'm still happy with my wink, you know, by comparison to everything else. So um, yeah. Surprise. And, and- well, yeah, and, and even more surprising because of, you know, uh, GE, Corky, getting selling off Wink to Flex, and there was concern there. What about the product? What about the support? What about the service? It, I don't feel like it's affected me at all. So, Oh, and I've been traveling a lot this summer, but very soon I will have Wink relays in my house. I've gotten some feedback from listeners on the mm. show, and they say that they love them. So These are the little touchscreen $99 in-wall thingies, right? Yes, Hmm. So those are those are coming. Oh, okay. I was going to send them to Kevin. That's right. Uh, oh, I like that idea. Okay, we'll send them to Kevin. Although then we'll hear the review three years later. So, Ouch! Da-da! Burn! Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go on to now. We'll do dev boards since we've kind of moved into this DIY-ish direction. 
Kevin, you found a really cool product, actually. Interesting. Yeah, it, it is a Kickstarter uh, project. Keep that in mind. I want to make that caveat beforehand. But for as little as $5, you can get a little development board for IoT, the Omega 2. There are tons and tons of add-ons for this thing. I'm very impressed by all the add-ons. It's super small. It's about a quarter of the size of a Raspberry Pi, a third the size of an Arduino Uno. So it is pretty small. Tons of expansion packs, as I mentioned. Runs with Linux. Has uh, remote integration. They call it cloud integrated so that you can remote control to it from anywhere in the world using the Onion Cloud. You can view the status of it in real time. You can deploy software updates to it when it's in the field. So that's interesting. As far as expandability, uh, it has Wi-Fi built in, I believe. You can add Bluetooth. You can add cellular to it. Uh, you can connect it to an Arduino. Tons and tons of integrations here. So I like this for people who want to tinker with IoT solutions uh, on the cheap, basically. I mean, you add the, the add-on boards and you start talking about some serious money. But for five bucks, you can get started. Ah, okay. And I, I was like, the Onion Cloud, I have not heard about that. But it's it's Omega, the maker of the board's cloud, and it's free, Correct. actually, for dev users. So mm -hmm. I was like, ooh, fun. Made by the Onion Corporation. Not the satirical uh, journalistic place, yes. And no, this is at onion.io. Yes, because if you don't have a .io, you're just not living. No. You're not living your best IoT why don't life. They have, why don't I have a .iot? Oh, my God. Sorry. You've broken it. Okay. Speaking of dev boards, my devices, the company that makes Cayenne, which is a easy to use programming language for IoT, um, has partnered with Arduino. So now they support the Raspberry Pi and Arduino, which a lot of my listeners send me emails that I then read and they like Cayenne, believe it or not. So, you know, if you're one of those people, now works with Arduino. And then finally, Particle the company that makes the Photon and other dev boards, I'm trying to think of the names of them, the Spark. Spark, uh, yes, Spark Core. Spark mm -hmm. Core, and then the Photon, which has the cellular connectivity, I believe. They have a cloud, which I'm going to be honest, guys, I, I really thought they always had a cloud because you mm. connected your board and sent data to their cloud. To somewhere, yeah. But... They formally announced it last week, and they also have built in integrations with Microsoft, Azure, Google, their cloud infrastructure, if this, then that, and some other places. So now it's more fully functioning for enterprises, and companies like Keurig and Clever Pet use it. So there you go. Particle, that much more legit. And that, that's our dev board roundup for the day. Let's see. What should we cover next? We teased it at the beginning, some interesting IoT data points in terms of the carriers. Oh, yes. So this is from our friend Chetan Sharma, who is a- We love Chetan. We do. He's he's a wonderful person, and he's a really kick-butt analyst. Yep. So if you're if you're needing data about carriers, Chetan Sharma Consulting is his company's name. So he tells us, Kevin, actually, you should do this because- Yeah. So I, I plucked out three key data points. I mean, Chetan, if anybody's ever read his- analytical reports. I mean, it's like volumes of information. So I just went in and, and snagged a couple of interesting points. First one, for the first time, IoT, which he includes, <clears throat> excuse me, connected cars, net ads for carriers exceeded the net ads for phones and tablets combined. I guess that's a little, I don't want to say obvious, but 
a little unsurprising because phone and tablet ads have been slowing because right. the market we're saturated. Is utterly saturated. You see that with like Apple's iPhone sales. That's been like the big topic of conversation in mm-hmm. the last few weeks. But yeah. everyone likes that that transition point where you're like, oh, look, mm-hmm. these numbers went higher than these numbers for the first time ever. Yeah. In terms of AT&T, their connected car onboarding pace is twice that of its connected tablets pace. It also leads back to what we were just talking about with saturation. But a very interesting number, AT&T is expected to reach 10 million connected car subscriptions very soon, roughly in roughly 12 quarters from the time they first started doing it, compared to 25 quarters it took for tablets. So they're just getting their, their chips and servicing cars quite quickly. I still don't I have connected car options in my two vehicles. I just don't use them. We'll talk about that in a second. I don't want to preclude Verizon. Their IoT and telematics has risen 25% year over year to $205 million, which Chetan says, hey, we're getting close to a $1 billion a year run rate in that business for Verizon, which is no small amount of chump change. That's very, very good. So, so, so wait, more context, though, before we talk about connected cars. Okay. AT&T achieved, according to Chetan, a $1 billion in yes, they did. Revenue last year. Last so year. Verizon yeah. is playing catch up. AT&T is the master when it comes to connecting cars. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have Tesla, they have Audi, they have uh, Chrysler, they have a bunch of brands. So they really won this. And I think actually a lot of people say that AT&T's ability to get Tesla is what prompted a lot of the other carriers to say, whoa, we should really be talking to all these connected <laughs> thing people because we missed out on Tesla. Yeah, that was that was bad. Okay, Kevin, tell us why you don't use anything in your car. Well, so I guess I struggle with with the business model from a consumer standpoint. I'm I've already got a phone with LTE or maybe up to four phones if my whole family is with me in the car. Why am I going to make a a hotspot here in my car? Why am I? Why do I need that connectivity? You when have to pay I, for it. Sorry. No, no, I'm asking because mine, yeah. mine comes. So here's what I think. Okay. I love the fact that my car. So again, I'm not trying to like first world problems people or like beat this in people's <laughs> head, but I do. I bought a used Tesla and I love it. Mm-hmm. Oh, it, has, well. <laughs> it has an AT&T connection in it. And mm-hmm. I don't actually have autopilot or a lot of the fancy features that might need more of that. Mm-hmm. But Tesla pays for the subscription. and That's the difference. Yes. And without it, the car would be almost useless. So I actually have this thing because they're they're like, we're going to pay for it for the first, I think it's seven years of the car. But I, and I'm like, and AT&T hasn't even set pricing for what it would be afterwards. And Tesla is actually like, I I talked to my friends who have, you know, 2013 and models and they're like, yeah, I, I don't even think about that. So without connectivity though, if I have to pay for it, my car becomes not useless, but it becomes less exciting and less like a luxury vehicle that I paid a lot of money for. Right. right and right. I think that they should be taking the Kindle model on these things because when you're buying a car now, most people are thinking they're buying a computer. So if you're actually buying a computer, then you, you've just got to have the connectivity as part of it. And the manufacturer needs to pay for it. That's, that's my gut sense. And then they can limit it all they want. They probably like, I can't stream Netflix in my Tesla and that's fine by me because mm-hmm. it's a car, not a movie theater. So that, that's my two cents there. So I think the big difference is Tesla is probably an outlier in that it's including the LTE for you. Whereas my new Volkswagen 
I got a trial for six months, which includes security and nav features and so on and so forth. So, But after that, you do have to pay. And I think that's probably more of the, the prevalent model. Should it be that model? Maybe not. Maybe, you know, taking going on your take on the Kindle model, maybe it should just be there. It should be connected. I don't know. I just think so much like, how are they going to do an over-the-air update if that's not, you know, there? And so cars are going to need those. So well, my, like- my guess is they could do that and, and they just cover the data charges through the carrier directly. I'd never know about it. It would just push an update or you get your vehicle updated at the dealership. Pish tosh, the dealership. The dealership. I don't have to, I don't want to go somewhere to get something. That's ridiculous. Uh, they could send it over the air. Amazon Prime for car updates, please. <laughs> Drop me a USB with all the data I oh, need. No, 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 don't, don't, don't do that. Don't do that. <laughs> all right. So those are the fun data points. A bit yes. about connected cars. I wonder if maybe luxury cars have this. So anybody out there who's got like a, I don't know, BMW or a high-end Mercedes with lots of fancy stuff on it, let us know. Info at iotpodcast.com. Because I'm very curious, like, are we going to have this model where user pays or where manufacturer pays because the the connected features are so much part of the selling point of the car. Yeah. Okay. We're going to run from connected cars to security. But before we do that, there's a new toy in town. It is the Logitech. Oh, go on. (laughs) The Logitech pop home switch. (laughs) It is a $40 programmable button that will work with your Logitech harmony, but also many of your other smart devices in the home. And you can program it to basically be a button that does anything you want. Like, good night, house. Click. It's a button. It can turn on lights. You can actually do different presses, a single press, a double press, and a long press. So this is kind of like the Philips Hue tap for many, many moons ago, mm-hmm. but it works with other things. And it also can, it has an app that detects all the other devices in your house. So you don't actually have to like fiddle around with like a sign. Well, you do have to fiddle around with assigning things. Now that I think about it, it is just like the Hue tap, actually. It is, and it's and it starts at forty dollars. There is a starter pack for one hundred dollars, but we're not sure yet what's in the starter pack. I don't know if it's multiple pops or what. But normally, I'm not a fan of these things. However, I could see myself spending forty dollars for one, and the main reason why nobody in the family likes using the echo to turn lights on and turn lights off, other than me. So they sit there and they're like, "Can you turn the lights on?" Really? I would just, yes, really. They don't like talking to the device or devices. So I would spend the $40 at this point because it's so aggravating that I will just spend the $40 and get them a button that turns lights on and off. Basically, all the switches I just replaced, I have to re-replace with a smart button now. Well, wait, you should switch. Okay, I'm so confused. They won't get up and go to the switch? I mean, if you're not going to talk to something, you might as well like just suck it up and walk there. Well, these aren't on switches. They're lamps. Oh, yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah. All right. Well, see, so this would be good. I would buy it because here's my dream, you guys. Hmm. Actually, I wouldn't buy it because I now have a dot by my bed. But actually, and then again, maybe I won't. Um, so <laughs> it's a great fun thing to have a button by your bed that like turns off everything, right? You're like, hmm. it's done. And I actually played with the Hue Tap, but it didn't control anything other than the lights. So that was kind of, you know, it was yeah. fun to have it for controlling lights, but this could like, this could possibly lock my doors. Lock up the fortress, turn off the lights, turn on the cameras. Everything happens. So yep. um, right now the Echo doesn't work with all of my stuff. 
It's not mm. clear. Logitech actually has a lot of good stuff that it works with more so than the Echo. Actually, it works also with the Echo. So maybe you could be like, she who shall not be named, activate my pop button. That would be so fun or redundant. <laughs> anyway, I'm just being silly this week. But with this thing, I think it actually would be a lot of fun. I like buttons. Mm-hmm. And my daughter likes buttons. So she's got this thing where she doesn't want, quote unquote, robots in her room. But maybe if I just gave her the button and said if she hits it, things happen. She's she's pretty smart. She'd probably realize it was a robot and kick it out. But I don't know. I like it. I would buy one in a heartbeat and probably will. The other thing, oh, about this is this is great for people who have babysitters because it ties into the Logitech Harmony Hub, which if you've programmed that correctly, you know, you can actually have your TV come on now with a one button press. So you right. could you could create those kind of settings. So like one button is cable, two buttons is video, three buttons is I don't know, your house is on fire and everyone should get out. So that would be really nice for people who've got parents or guests who come in and are like, Oh my God, your TV is so complicated. Mm-hmm. So it's a Netflix and chill button. That is the Logitech. And now we should talk about hackable. They're not hackable buttons. They're hackable locks. Kevin brought up this story about 75% of Bluetooth smart locks can be hacked. And later on, I'm going to tell you all the locks that were hacked. And I'm going to tell you August's response because they're a popular, they're actually the one with the most mind share. I don't know if they're the one with the most market share. I don't know. Market share. I was like, I've got quick set locks. They were not in the list, but I am aware that a quick set lock is really easy to open. You know, if you have a screwdriver and you just want to open the lock. Yeah. Sorry, Kevin. I know you have those too. No. Yeah, no, I, it's working really well for me, but yeah. Is it the highest grade quality security? No, perhaps not. Now, when I installed a connected Schlage lock, I was like, oh, this lock is way better. So, okay, let's see. Kevin, did you see anything you wanted to bring up about DEF CON? No, I mean, just a general comment. I always cringe this time of the year when we have Black Hat, DEF CON, and all these security things because that's when all of these reports come out, you know, and, and people, researchers have been sitting on security issues for possibly three, four, six months, whatever it is. And it's like the scariest time of the year. So I kind of cringe. I mean, it's it's a good thing that they're doing what they're doing, but, you know, there was just tons of doom and gloom things that came out in the past week or two about security. So it's just a general thought. All right. Well, after a message from our sponsor, I will tell you, you will be relieved to know that Bo's comments to us are don't panic. Good. So stay tuned for that. Hey everyone, this is Stacy breaking into the IoT podcast with a message from our sponsor, Thingmonk. Thingmonk is a developer conference for people making the Internet of Things happen. This annual conference in September brings together technologists and designers who build core infrastructure for IoT platforms. At the event, you'll see two days of expert speakers, including me, giving talks on everything from bots to industrial automation, machine learning to time series data, programming language choices to UX. As a special treat, they're also bringing back the famous Thing Monk Hack Day, sponsored by IBM. They'll have a short Watson and Alexa skills workshop to kick things off with no prior knowledge required. To learn more about the conference, please visit www.thingmonk.com. IoT podcast listeners get a 20% discount code for any of the days or a combination of all three days. So to take advantage, use the promotional code IoT podcast when you register. Back to the show.
Hey guys, it's Stacy. And before we get to Bo Woods, I did want to jump in with a correction from last week. Last week, we talked about Philips and their new line of medical devices, a watch, a body scale, a BP monitor, blood pressure monitor, and an ear thermometer. When I spoke about them, I said that they were FDA approved, but that wasn't actually true. Two of them, the health watch and the body scale are listed with the FDA as a medical device. That's kind of a lower bar for them to clear. It basically just means they've got to not be duplicitous and be suitable for intended uses and be properly labeled and that sort of thing. So That is kind of what that means. And then the other three devices, the ear thermometer and the blood pressure monitors, both the wrist and the arm, are medically cleared devices. And that means that the FDA has determined that they are substantially equivalent to another legally marketed medical device. So that is what you need to know. Not approved, but listed and cleared. Thanks. Now on to Bo. Today's guest is Bo Woods, who has a whopping long title, but it's a good one. He is a deputy director of the Cyber Statecraft Initiative for the Atlantic Council. Ho, oh, Bo, thanks for being here. And can you tell us what that means in normal people language? Thank you, Stacey. It's good to be on again with you. So uh, I have a long background in the information security community and industry. When I came to the Atlantic Council, did so because I was going to hopefully I'll be able to bring some of the technical literacy to public policymakers who are making decisions about technology that influences us every day. Things like cars, things like medical devices, critical infrastructure. All right. We probably need a lot of that in the public policy sphere and actually all over the place. So last time (laughs) you were on the show, you talked about nine points for making connected devices in the smart home a little bit safer. And for Mm -hmm. those of you guys who are like, oh, I totally want to hear that. Um, You should. It was awesome. It was back in March. So now we're here because Bo was at DEF CON last week, and there was a lot of IoT hacking, a lot of connected car hacking, just in general, a lot of people testing the boundaries of cybersecurity. So Bo, why don't you tell us kind of your impressions from the show? Yeah, sure. So I was out there all week long. It was a, a grueling August in Vegas. It was pretty hot, but uh, visited the B-Sides Las Vegas Security Conference as well as DEF CON and heard about some of the things that went on at Black Hat. Like you said, there was lots of IoT hacking. Overall, it seems like the level of IoT hacking is going way, way up. I helped to run the contests, villages, and events at DEF CON, and that's where we held uh, the Car Hacking Village, IoT Village, and biohacking village. I got to say, car hacking village was packed wall to wall all three days. There was so much good content. Uh, a lot of people uh, who had set up demonstrations and workshops that they were doing. Uh, they had a special badge this year that was in the shape of a car and it had uh, an OBD2 connector on it that you could use to uh, connect into your car and read some of the data off of it as well as to do some other things. Okay, wait, um, I would yes, not probably, accept that yeah. from someone who was at DEF CON. I'd be like, no, no, you're totally sending all my car data back to your like mysterious, nefarious labs. <laughs> yeah, well, who knows? Who knows what's really in it? The real hackers will go and they'll have the curiosity to dig in and find out what's on those PCBs. But for everybody else, yeah, I uh, plugging something into your car of unknown provenance might not be the best idea unless you're planning to do it for test purposes, in which case, you know, go ahead. 
hey, that was security tip number one for you. Don't plug strange things into <laughs> your cars, computers, and or other stuff. It's general yep. life advice, actually. So <laughs> so the car hacking was a big thing. Uh, did you see anything? Mm-hmm. The, the guys who did the Jeep hack were back. And I'm curious, mm-hmm. the ones who stopped a Jeep on a moving highway or moving on a highway, everyone was very excited about it. They came back. They wanted to actually, I think it was control the brakes of the car this time around. And did you see anything from them? Were they impressive? Yeah. So I, uh, I wasn't able to attend their talk, but I heard a lot about it. As you could imagine, the last time, uh, they did a demo, uh, they killed the engine on a highway in St. Louis, um, and then brought it off the highway to do some other things with it. This year they were back and they were demonstrating how they could do a lot of the same things that they were able to do in very slow speeds at actually very fast speeds. So they seem to to systematically go through every year and try and bust myths. And I think the myth that was busted this time was that the only car hacking that could happen of turning the steering wheel would have to be at a very, very slow speed, and therefore it wouldn't be consequential on highways and things like that. So it couldn't be a, a broader public safety menace. It could only be something that was done in a lab, essentially. And what Chris and Charlie showed is that that was not the case, that they could do it at speed, and it could cause the type of large-scale highway denial of service, if you will, um, (laughs) that would be things like massive traffic jams, right? So uh, I think that that one was was much talked about. Uh, It got a lot of coverage. Okay, so just for those of us who are like, holy cow, that's scary. What should automakers do? Should I actually tell me first, should I worry? Well, I think Douglas Adams said it best when he said, don't panic, grab your crying towel and uh, just deal with the fact that these things are both true and scary and also not likely to affect you, at least not anytime soon. So while there should be a large degree of uh, awareness among consumers, among automakers, among policymakers, I don't think it's time to go out and stop buying cars right now. In fact, the worst thing you could probably do is to buy an older model car that has less safety gear rather than a newer model uh, car, which has more safety gear, but in which there's more uh, chance of an exotic type of, uh, of failure or security failure from them. Newer cars have lots of cool gear that keeps you safe on the roads. Uh, the older cars don't fare as well in some of the performance testing uh, in that way because of the, the great capabilities that um, computer systems and connectivity can actually bring. So uh, I think that's uh, the number one lesson is that we want to preserve trust in these more safe vehicles. Okay. So don't panic. Buy a newer car as opposed to one that has no technical things because it's probably going to be packed with safety gear that is more likely to save your life than someone is to hack it and kill you on the road. Yep, that's right. And just uh, as a brief aside, uh, there was also another talk about autonomous vehicles. And the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, NHTSA, measures the number of deaths per year at around 35,200. And like 94% of those are caused by human error of some sort. So NHTSA saw the single death uh, in where it was related to an autonomous driving vehicle Uh, not even fully autonomous, just driver assist, uh, as I believe Tesla calls it. And they're still very bullish on the idea of having this driver assist feature because it will save lives. So as we look at 
these types of things that make headlines that people go and talk about, uh, it's also important to keep those in context. So if there's one death per day from a driver assist vehicle, but there's 80 deaths per day from a non-driver assist vehicles uh, across the U.S., then keeping that within context helps us see the bigger, broader impact of uh, improved rather than uh, decreased safety. Okay. So now on to the IoT village where yes. there were tons of exciting hacks. The most, I think the one that got the most headlines was probably the Bluetooth locks being hacked. And this was mm-hmm. someone who hacked, let's see, it was 12 out of 16 available Bluetooth locks. And the vulnerabilities ranged from things like not having AES level encryption to being able to jimmy it open with a screwdriver. So what is your take on this? Yeah, that all sounds really scary, but there is actually a lock picking village where they can teach you to do more effective techniques against a broader array of locks from the same distance that is right next to it or, or you know, within some certain proximity of it a lot faster uh, with the traditional locks. So while the Bluetooth lock hacking is, is definitely scary and there's some very basic hygiene things that it seems like got missed, both on the, the computer side, the Bluetooth side, and the uh, computer logic to process that, as well as on um, the just basic physical gear. Like you mentioned, a screwdriver can let you in. When that's, your, <laughs> when that's the level of physical security that you're putting into these things, and it's no wonder that some of the computer security stuff is not done right. But again, to put that in perspective, uh, somebody's got to be really close to it. And if they're really close to it, they could just smash a window. Or the my doorbell camera. Get out of those locks. Yeah, oh, would that's pick right. Them up. Your doorbell I'd be like, camera. Oh, there's someone trying to <laughs> hack my door. Okay, sorry, you were going to say something. <laughs> right. Yeah, so the, the real security that most of these locks provide is uh, that it's a delay of someone getting in. So it hopefully gives you time to detect them and respond to it. Or... Uh, it stops a, a casual person from being able to get in undetected. If somebody smashes your door to get in to rob you, then obviously that leaves a trail. If you're able to get in by picking the lock or by breaking the Bluetooth locking mechanism, then there's no detective capability. You don't know someone was in there, Got which it. could be you know, worse in some cases. That might be worse and, and more disturbing than to see uh, your door office hinges because somebody's kicked it in. Yes, they could still be in the house. Every babysitter's nightmare. Just for our <laughs> listeners, some of the locks that were hacked were made by QuickLock, iBlueLock, Plantraco, Seomate, L-Cycle, Vions, Okidoki, and MeshMotion. I did reach out to August, the maker of the ever-popular August locks, and they said, August locks use AES encryption cipher blockchain on top of the standard Bluetooth encryption and they've actually been working with those hackers for a while now just to make sure they're secure. So if you have an August lock, feel good about it. If you have one of those other locks, maybe feel less good. So from the floor, we also saw the first ransomware on a thermostat, I believe. Is this something I should worry about? Yes. First demonstrated ransomware on a thermostat. So this is a uh, it's essentially research, and the researchers did a proof-of-concept demonstration, which is maybe not something that's viable in real life. You know, you don't have to worry about the exact threat vector that they used, 
which required physical access to the device through an SD card. But this type of thing is very similar to actually the last thing I was on your show talking about, Stacey, which is, you know, some of the coming potential problems in the Internet of Things. When you're connecting everything to the Internet and its software wasn't built to be connected to the Internet, it wasn't designed to resist accidents and adversaries, then it's potentially susceptible to any type of attack. The specific one demonstrated here wasn't real. They didn't release it into the wild. However, what it did is it essentially set your thermostat on some consistent level and said, you know, pay me a Bitcoin or you'll never be able to change the temperature again, which is actually a common type of technique used in other computer systems. And we've actually seen it uh, accidentally hit some healthcare equipment. And the researchers here ported that same type of capability to a new platform, a new type of platform. Uh, and there's a, a growing body of evidence to suggest that this type of attack holding home systems for ransom might actually be something that's coming in the future. And actually, if you're a fan of Mr. Robot, you already saw that in the first episode of season one, uh, season two, where a smart home was essentially entirely taken over. And if you're watching the Mr. Robot show, and then you read the document that we put out in March on smart homes and the internet of everything, we had a kind of a doomsday scenario in there, which looks a lot like the Mr. Robot scenario, which is kind of neat to have predicted Mr. Robot. There you go. Maybe they just stole it from you. And listeners, by the way, I will link in the show notes to the episode that Bo was on. So if you're, if you want to lose some sleep, you can go listen to that. Or if you're building a product and you want to make it secure, you should go listen to that. So absolutely. Physical access, because this is something I feel like when I think about securing connected devices, there's, you know, I have to ask myself, gosh, is this a, is this a physical access threat? Is this a threat from the wireless radios, like being overheard or man in the middle type attacks? Is this a threat, like getting my data or passwords from someone else's, you know, storing it? So in the cloud, or is this, let's see, I don't know what else there is. What other categories should I be worried about? If I'm thinking about this, like as a normal consumer. Right. So there's many different levels to think on because you kind of talked about the physical access. One thing to keep in mind is uh, a lot of the radios that are typically used to hack into these things, such as Bluetooth, have a certain range, right? There's the normal range that it's supposed to work in, such as 10 meters. And then there's the amplified range, uh, which I think the researchers demonstrated a quarter of a mile to get into the Bluetooth systems, or at least some of them. That's a larger threat surface or potential number of attackers than if it's a physical thing where you need a screwdriver to get in, but it's also a smaller attack surface uh, or a number of physical attackers than something that's connected to the internet, uh, where it could be potentially attacked by any of the 5 billion or so people uh, who have access to the internet. So this is one of the interesting parts of looking at smart devices is as we tend to model home locks, we assume that someone will be right there. They'll need to be right there to attempt to defeat that lock. On the internet, uh, someone could be anywhere in the world. So the number of potential attackers goes way, way up. And as we know, in most cases, it only takes one person with an internet connection who wants to do something to be able to pull it off. Now, that sounds really scary until you think, what is the good of having someone unlock my door unless they're actually outside my house? That's a great question. And I think we've, we've come to the point where we no longer have to ask, 
can we do something with technology? But we haven't yet started to ask in all cases, should we do this with the technology? And I think that that might be the growing question that manufacturers should be asking and that consumers, more importantly, should be asking is, do I want this device to be unlocked? You know, Do I want my front door to be unlocked from anyone on the internet? Or is it sufficient to have someone right there doing it uh, with you know, a Bluetooth or with a number combination or with a, God forbid, a physical lock? I have one of those. I have one of all of these. Okay, so that's kind of good to think about. I actually have had my locks. So I had the Quickset Z-Wave locks, and I have them attached to a Wink Hub. And I had a lovely hacker come over to my house, hack into my Wink Hub. And through that, he actually was able to unlock my Z-Wave locks. And I was like, ah, suck. But it did take him quite some time. And to be fair, I, I did have to give him my Wi-Fi password because he couldn't crack it. So it was a bit of a contrived situation to the extreme. But theoretically, it could happen. So if we're not worried about Bluetooth locks, we might be worried about ransomware, which I would die if someone took over my thermostat and said, you know, you can't have it. Sets it to anything above like 77 in the summer. So what else? Did you see anything else there that you're like, oh, man, we should also worry about this, maybe on the medical device side? Well, I'll tell you, there's maybe not, hey, we should worry about this, but I saw a lot of uh, things going on with, here's what we can do to do better. And one of those was at uh, B-Sides Las Vegas, I Am the Cavalry, which I'm also a part of, uh, had a track on kind of updates for what the landscape looked like, as well as an attempt to come to some really good, profound discoveries about what we will need in order to, at scale, uh, ensure that uh, technology that has the ability to impact public safety and human life uh, is worthy of the trace, the trust that we place in it. So the details of that you can check out through videos, which will soon be released by B-Sides. But I think we made a lot of uh, good progress on figuring out what each of the stakeholders uh, in that ecosystem, including buyers, can potentially do uh, to make sure that uh, they're more secure and more safe. Okay, so do you want to give me like the top two things buyers can do? Sure. We already talked about one of them, which is don't panic. Understand things in their context um, and understand that when you're getting a driver assist type vehicle that can automatically pilot you around, that a single exotic death or a single exotic accident should not offset the gains from the many, many mundane accidents that it prevents. Another thing is to, you know, ask questions uh, for physicians who are looking at new medical devices or hospitals that are looking at new medical devices or patients. Ask whoever is uh, in the conversation with you, what's the safety, what's the efficacy, what's the security of this device? Same thing goes for people buying home devices. You know, ask at the store. It turns out, as we talked about last time, I believe, that customers asking at the store level is actually a really good lever to be able to go back to the manufacturers and say, hey, everybody's asking me about this. What do I tell them? And then maybe a third thing is to look for certain indicators of security measures or precautions. So if you look for things like coordinated vulnerability disclosure program that the manufacturer makes available, uh, it sends an indicator to the market that we're very confident in the safety and security of our products to the point where we invite people who find flaws and defects 
to tell us about them so that we can make them better. Oh, okay. Because I was like, what, it, what the what? I don't even know what that is. But you're talking about a bug bounty program. Uh, a bug bounty is one instantiation. A bug bounty is a system where a company pays researchers for flaws that they find. There's another one, which is a lower bar, which basically just says, we won't sue you if you report in good faith. So there's lots of people who are out there using their devices and accidentally run across flaws. In certain cases, manufacturers have either ignored reports of those flaws or have actively tried to sue researchers or others who report those flaws. So a message from the manufacturer that says, you know, we won't sue you because we believe that our customers must be protected against these types of flaws, you know, that's a good indicator. Okay. So super fast. If I'm a manufacturer, mm -hmm. what are the two things I should be doing? If you're a manufacturer, look to build in safety and security in your entire design lifecycle. Take reports of flaws or defects from those who find them and work with them. And third, make sure that your products are updatable so that when there is something better way that's known or a flaw that's found, you can respond to that and at least make the fix available. All right. Let's see. Are there are there other people in this value chain we should talk about? Oh, um, the government. Hello. Yes. <laughs> for policymakers. It's a, a subtle and nuanced thing sometimes. Um, different stakeholders within the government can have different roles. One that's taking a particularly active interest is the Federal Trade Commission, who looks at things like um, baby monitors that say they are secure when actually they're not secure and looking at claims versus actual uh, effectiveness. Food and Drug Administration has done a great job to date uh, of coming up to speed on uh, cybersecurity and safety issues within medical devices. The Department of Transportation has recently shown some good signs that they're coming on board. Uh, in January, they published kind of a roadmap of what they're working towards this year. And one of those was to work with security researchers who often find flaws uh, and who can help be a part of uh, getting those flaws fixed within the automotive ecosystem. All right. Well, Bo, thank you so much for both sharing your experience at DEF CON and B-Sides. And was there another one? Black Hat. <laughs> there was. So sharing yeah. your, your scary experience in Vegas and also for reminding us what's important as consumers and manufacturers when it comes to thinking about buying connected products. So thank you. Thank you, Stacey. It's always a pleasure to be on. Well, that concludes this week's show. Thanks for listening. And if you are so excited about the Internet of Things and you want more news, make sure you sign up for my newsletter, Stacy Knows Things, at stacyoniot.com. We'll see you next week. Thank you.